Welcome to the 263rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author, Dean Koontz. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore, and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now for reading and writing podcast listeners. Get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, with your first month of membership. Just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Dean Kuntz. For readers, Kuntz doesn't need much of an introduction at all, but here's a little background. The author of multiple New York Times bestselling novels, Kuntz has had 14 hardcovers and 16 paperbacks reach the number one position on the New York Times bestseller list. His books are published in 38 languages, and he has sold over 500 million copies to date. Kuntz most recent most recently wrote and published the five-book Jane Hawks series, as well as last year's six novellas in the Nameless series. This week's Kuntz's latest novel, Devoted, was published. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me there. Great. Well, before we discuss your brand new novel, Devoted, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how it feels after decades and decades of writing novels to now be considered the Nostradamus of this global pandemic. <laughs> it, it feels stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do not, uh, I did not predict the pandemic. I did not predict the coronavirus. Uh, somebody on the internet married a page from the eyes of darkness with a page from some nonfiction book, uh, that specified 2020 and uh, said it was all in the same book. Now, in Eyes of Darkness, it does mention uh, the Wuhan 400 virus, uh, as I call it, but that was simply research. Uh, it, back in 1981, there was a web biological warfare lab outside of Wuhan, uh, and there had been since the 1950s. It's still there today. Uh, so that's just coincidental. But um, you know, maybe I should open a website where I charge nine ninety five to tell you your future and uh, <laughs> see how that goes as a business. But uh, yeah, I'm as I have said before, if I, my reputation as a prognosticator is grossly exaggerated, considering I don't can't even predict what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. So. <laughs> so hundreds of novels before you became a social media kind of uh, uh, trending globally. <laughs> 
<laughs> it shows you how bizarre this whole new world of ours is. But, it is, uh, it is. Well, well, let's get to Devoted. If someone listening hasn't heard about your brand new novel, Devoted, yet, how would you describe your new novel? Well, it's uh, it's scary, I think. It's hopeful as well as scary. It's got a little bit of humor in it. But it's the story of Megan, a young mother who's got an 11-year-old son who is an autistic boy with a very high IQ who hasn't spoken in 11 years, but he has a very rich internal life. Uh, His mother is a widow. His father was supposedly killed in an accident. But Woody, this boy, thinks his father was murdered, and he's got considerable hacker skills, and he ends up ultimately on the dark web where he finds what seems to be a disguised murder for hire site. And he thinks this is who may have killed his father. Well, they are aware that Woody has found them, and they are coming for him. They're not the only bad guys who are coming for he and his mother. There's one even worse. Uh, But Woody and his mother have a secret ally they don't know about immediately. And that is a character named Kip. And here is a slight spoiler, uh, which is resolved in the first scene. You meet Kip. You don't realize at first that Kip is a dog. And Kip is not just an ordinary dog. He is a dog of considerable enhanced intelligence. And uh, that puts in motion the basic story, which had great deal of fun writing. And so you mentioned a dog with advanced intelligence. Um, I think that your devoted readers are familiar with your novel, Watchers. Is there any connection between these two novels? No, this isn't a prequel or a sequel. It has none of the same characters. But over time, you know, when I wrote Watchers way back when there were saber-toothed tigers then, uh, (laughs) that was, I had not had a dog as an adult and had not had the experience and the joy of it. And years later, we started getting dogs. Our first was a golden retriever named Trixie, then one named Anna, and now we have Elsa. And as I watched these dogs and as I thought about them, and as we got more and more involved with Canine Companions for Independence, which produces assistance dogs for people with disabilities, I began to think rather seriously about the human-dog bond and about what goes on in the minds of these creatures, which are truly exceptional. And I decided I wanted to write another novel about the human-dog bond and about intelligence rising up in dogs, but not, not as in Watchers, because they came out of laboratory experiment in enhanced intelligence. In Devoted, the dogs are more intelligent because nature has made them that way. 100,000 years of bonding with human beings has led to an evolutionary movement in the mental capacities of certain dogs. And the book supposes there's a secret society of dogs. They call themselves the Mysterians because they don't know where they came from. Uh, They don't understand that it was an act of nature that's put them where they are. And these dogs communicate with one another through a level of telepathy uh, that they call the wire. And they live secretly among us. And at one point in the novel, uh, Kip hears this cry that is not the cry of one of the Mysterians, but is the cry, in fact, of a human being. And the first one he's ever heard on the wire, uh, and that is Woody, who's in deep distress, and Kip sets out to find him. So it's a story about the human-dog bond, like Watchers was, but it rises out of totally different circumstances. 
And and given uh, as you mentioned your your work with canine companions and having um, a number of dogs now as an adult, uh, what is it about dogs and that human and dog human and dog bond that fascinates you and leads you to write about it? Well, when I first we first got our dogs, the writing first got Trixie writing scientific opinion of dogs. What science specializing? in animal studies would tell you back in the day was that dogs don't feel the same emotions we do, uh, that we anthropomorphize them and imagine that they do, and would also tell us that dogs' intelligence was at a certain level as high as they would ever get. Uh, But now, 30 years later, uh, they tell you just the opposite. We now know that the, the brains of dogs and the brains of human beings light up in the same fashion to the same stimuli. So we now know they form and have the same emotions that we do, uh, which seems to be obvious to dog owners, but not to the scientists. And they also are beginning to recognize there's more going on inside those furry heads than they once thought. And if you ever worked with dogs that were trained to be assistance dogs, they go through 24 months of training. And what they learn to do and what they're capable of learning even after that is pretty astounding. And a good assistance dog coming out of the program will have a vocabulary of 200 words. I had a dog, my first one, Trixie. I was able to teach her the names of all of her many, many, many toys. Um, And so I would teach her that this toy was a giraffe. This one was a rat. This one was a kitten. This one was this. And she would learn all of those names so that if I said, go get the giraffe, she would go get the giraffe. Uh, and I eventually figured out, I think her vocabulary is pretty close to 400 words. Um, so there is a lot going on there. And I wanted to explore that and really take it one step higher. I'm not saying that dogs as they are have our level of intelligence. Right. But why couldn't that possibly evolve. Uh, We once thought that brain size alone was the definition of intelligence, and now we know that is not entirely correct. So so I I just like the idea of playing with that all over again, as I did in Watchers, but in a much different way with a much different kind of story. Right. Um, I'm wondering, is it possible for you to discuss your creative process? For example, with Devoted, do you remember exactly when you started thinking about kind of the core premise of the novel? And and given your work ethic, I'm I'm curious, did you start thinking about Devoted as you were working on another novel, or do you still go into your office on the first day of writing a new novel and have a blank screen and start writing to, to figure out um, what the, the novel is going to be about? Is it possible for you to pinpoint or, or talk about that process and what what it's like for you? Well, you know, it varies book to book. Um, uh, I always do start with a blank screen. I don't use uh, outlines. Uh, It's just whatever's in my head that I start with. Usually it's a little bit of a premise. It's not a full-scale storyline or anything like that. Uh, In this case, I can pin it down pretty well. I've been wanting for some years to write another book in which dogs with a certain level of intelligence play a major role. Uh, And I knew that I wanted it to have that 
Well, that sort of be, like, if people remember Watership Down, that Richard Adams novel about rabbits, right. and portraying them as characters and individual characters and so forth. I wanted to do, do that with the dogs. Uh, it isn't quite what it ended up, although the Mysterium does have allow some other dogs in this, although we don't do their points of view. Um, and so that was in the back of my mind. And then Canine Companions a few years ago, started, their original purpose had always been uh, assistance dogs for paraplegics, quadriplegics, spina bifida children, and that sort of thing, but they expanded a few years ago into doing them as well for autistic children, and those are called socializing dogs, and it's astounding to watch what one of these dogs can do with one of these children. Uh, the child remains autistic, but the emotional meltdowns, the inflexible behavior, and all of the worst uh, elements of that makes them difficult on a family sort of go away. And when they come back, the dog can immediately sense it coming and puts a paw on the person, presses itself upon them, and calms them. Uh, and I watched this taking place at Canine Companions, and that was part two of it. One day I said, wait a minute, this would be interesting if in the story we have this dog of enhanced intelligence that's a member of this secret society and this boy who has never spoken in 11 years of his life. And the dog, of course, has never spoken because it doesn't have vocal apparatus for speech. So that that back and forth, and then that they might connect on this wire on a telepathic way was a very intriguing idea. It still wasn't a storyline or anything. Uh, and then one day, I was I do a lot of science reading, and I read about this microbe called uh, archaea. It was long thought to be a, a bacteria, and it was only a couple of decades ago they found out that it isn't. It's a totally different life form. Um, and what archaea is, what's interesting about it is that we always thought DNA was transferred vertically from generation to generation. And that's how DNA developed and how species changed, if they changed. And, uh, but now we know that archaea can transfer genetic material from one species to another. It's horizontal DNA transfer. Uh, and this happens in nature. And as soon as I was reading that, I suddenly realized that was the third part of this story. That was the bad, worst of the bad guys. This book has a platoon of bad guys. <laughs> but the worst of the bad guys was going to be a CEO of a company researching this in transhuman experiments to see if they could enhance the human genome. Now, what they're going to do when they actually start doing this is mess up the human genome. And that's what starts to happen in this laboratories in Utah, that this CEO himself has to blow up and kill everybody in it to stop what's happening. But he himself is contaminated when he goes on the run. So as soon as that part, as soon as I saw Archaea in my reading, and it flashed into my head, ah, now I've got the dogs that nature is bringing along into enhance position, and this man who's trying to enhance human beings by weird science, uh, you have this juxtaposition of these two elements, and you have the boy and the dog, and all of a sudden the story fell together. Not everything that would happen in it. That only I discover as it goes along. But I knew those elements would 
provide a lot of drama and conflict and uh, and portray two different ways that that things are brought along in the world, uh, one through natural process and one through human seeking of utopia, which almost always ends in disaster. Got it. Um, well, I know in many interviews over the years, you, you've discussed your specific writing process, and you've, you've said that you will write and rewrite one page of your novel 30 to 40 times before you move on to the next page. Is that still how you're working? Yeah, I find as I get older, I can get the, I can get that smoothness of prose in maybe twenty passes on a page uh, instead of thirty or forty. But and sometimes fewer, but hardly ever fewer than ten or twelve. Uh, and it's it's just the way I work because I I don't recommend it to anybody. Uh, it, it, but it works for me. I could never write a quick draft and go back to fix things because it would feel like an alien work to me when I went back and I wouldn't know how to fix everything that I put on the page. If I take my time and do that draft and draft and draft and smooth that page out uh, until the prose sort of flows, um, and I'm always aware of how the language flows, if, if it has almost a musical quality to it, it becomes easier to read. And if I do that and, and then go on to the next page and march my way through the book at that kind of pace, any problems that I foresee coming up in 30, 40, or 50 pages because of some place the narrative is headed, if those problems seem insoluble at that moment, by the time I get to the place where the problem must be resolved, I've got numerous solutions to it because the subconscious has had time to work them out. Uh, so it's still how I work, and I've done it so long, I don't think there's any other way I can do it. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I know that very, very early in your career, uh, you wrote short stories for a year or two um, when you were starting out as a science fiction writer. I'm just curious, last year, as I mentioned at the top of the uh, interview, you wrote a series of novellas, uh, the Nameless Novellas, and, and I wondered, was there any sense for you of coming back to that shorter uh, length of, of fiction? And, and how, how was the process and experience for you of, of writing those novellas? Uh, I'd been doing a few when I was at Random House, but widespread and not with the same character necessarily. And uh, Amazon, long before I moved to them for novels, uh, which devoted as the first, um, asked me to write a novelette called, and I wrote one called Ricochet Joe, and uh, I enjoyed it. It was kind of fun, and uh, and it did well, and then they asked if I would consider writing six with the same character, and uh, I thought, I the thing about the shorter form, the novelette, is 15,000 words you can maybe finish in three weeks, where you have this lovely short horizon, and you can see the end. One of the worst things about 100,000 word and up novels is that some days it seems like you're never going to live long enough to finish the thing. <laughs> and you have this you know, cloud hanging over you. But the shorter horizon on a novelette is very appealing. So I wrote the nameless ones, and I had a lot of fun with them. Um, and uh, never wasn't sure how they were going to be received, but they've been downloaded over two million times now, so I guess they've been well received. And uh, 
I would do more of these if the opportunity arose. Uh, I would do more nameless even. Uh, <laughs> and uh, maybe that'll come about because we have a producer who is uh, taking all these out to the film or TV market right now, and uh, which it almost shut down like everything else. Right, exactly. knows, but, but, uh, but yeah, there, it's, it's a fun form. And uh, with nameless, I tried to see if I could take the color and the character depth of a a novel and kind of condense it all so that you felt you were getting not a short story or novelette experience, but something a little more than that. And uh, so, and it was sort of fun to see. I always like seeing what covers the publisher will come up with, assuming they don't come up with terrible ones. <laughs> and Amazon has had a great knack at coming up with great covers. So, so right. it was kind of fun seeing six covers instead of one. <laughs> well, after the majority of your long career working with traditional New York City publishers as well as international publishers around the globe, as you just uh, mentioned with your Nameless series and now devoted your brand new novel that was, that was uh, just published this week, you're working with Amazon directly as your publisher. What intrigued you about Amazon and led you to working with them? Well, I, I liked all the people I worked with at Random House. Uh, but it's no secret that there have been giant changes going on in publishing. There's been giant changes going on in everything. And I was getting frustrated that sometimes the New York publishing establishment in general just isn't always adapting to change very efficiently. And uh, it gets kind of frustrating if you start, you know, the to be free to do your craft and your art, you, you have to not be preoccupied with the business side of things. And I, until only a couple of years ago, I was my own agent for 14 years, but I finally got new agents, very good ones, um, finally, because I won't say that I've always been this good in the past. And uh, at finally, I said to them, you know, I think we have to make a change. And they agreed, and I uh, uh, we went on the open market, and we had eight offers. Now, I had delivered the uh, nameless stories, but they hadn't been published yet. And they, my agent said, we want to include Amazon in the people we submit to. And I thought, mm, that's strange for novels. Uh, <laughs> but I trusted the agents, so I said, let's do it. And when the offers came in, there were eight offers altogether. And Amazon's was equal to the best. But the deciding factor for me was uh, all the others had um, a marketing plan that was either one or two pages. Amazon had a marketing plan that was 30 pages. And I looked at that and I said, this is the difference. Uh, this is somebody who understands what's happening out there and is trying to, to adapt to it. Um, so while this means my books won't be at Barnes & Noble, probably won't get on any major bestseller list, even though we'll be selling more books than usual because Amazon's books aren't counted through those lists, and, which is odd considering they sell 60% of the books sold in America. Uh, so there were certain things you're giving up, but in the end, it's about reaching out to as many people as you can. And, and it really isn't about the money at this stage in my life. If it was about that, I would have given up 20 years ago because I had whatever I would need, but uh, um, it's it, it, books saved my life when I was a kid, and I'm in love with storytelling. 
Uh, and I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't storytelling. So you still need to have that audience and you want the largest one you can get because that's the point of it is communication. Gotcha. Well, I know uh, we're, as we've discussed earlier, just briefly, we're, we're unfortunately in the middle of this global pandemic and tragically the death toll in the U.S. is um, as of today is now above 6,000 and really distressing. Many of those families can't go through the normal grieving process of a traditional funeral because of the, the virus spread. Um, anyone who has read many of your novels will know that you write about a worldview rooted in optimism and even joy. Do you think reading and fiction can be a comfort for people in this new normal? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think more so than watching uh, anything on TV, because watching something on TV, as much as I love certain things on TV, is a passive act. Uh, it's all done for you. You just sit and watch. Reading a novel is is not a passive act. You're involved in it. Uh, it, it it's a collaboration between the writer and the reader, and the reader brings perception to it, sometimes more and sometimes less than what the writer wishes, but always their own involvement. They're, they become involved in it. And I know that because I grew up in a dysfunctional house. My father was a violent alcoholic, late in life, diagnosed first as borderline schizophrenic with tendencies to violence, complicated by alcoholism, and then later as sociopathic. Um, and to escape that as a child, books gave me hope. Uh, and books kept me optimistic. I, I often say I'm the greatest optimist I've ever met. Um, and not Pollyanna. Otherwise, I couldn't write the dark side of the book. That right, mm -hmm. but uh, but I do believe that that uh, there is meaning and purpose in life, and that books uh, that save me can save other people. And yes, there's great comfort in reading fiction, uh, unless you're going to read novels about pandemics, which I don't <laughs> think at the moment would make a lot of sense. Yes. Well, um, given all of your success as a writer, um, has your uh, thoughts about advice for aspiring writers who may be listening, um, has that changed? Or what, what would you advise someone, you know, today in 2020 who uh, is struggling to write their own stories or novels and get them published? Well, it, even before this uh, virus started sure. to lock down the country, which cannot be sustained, sooner or later this is going to have to stop or we're going to be in a depression that never ends. Um, but uh, but even before this, uh, the selling and building a career uh, as a writer had gotten harder over the years. And uh, when I started out, you had the paperback revolution, uh, 500 paperback distributors across the U.S., and now there are five. Paperback business is maybe 20% the size it was 10 years ago. Uh, e-books have come along to replace that. Unfortunately, most New York publishers don't want to price e-books the way they priced paperbacks. They want to price them at fifteen ninety-five or whatever. But what they really should price them as is what paperbacks once sold for because they have replaced paperbacks. Anyway, the long and short is back in the day, you could write failed book after failed book as paperback originals. Or, and maybe have a, build a small audience. And you were given plenty of time to do that. Uh, today, they have computers that track your sales. 
And if you have three books in a row that don't sell very well, a lot of writers then have to pick a pen name to use in the future. Uh, and so he's got all these obstacles that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. And there's many more, much more competition for your entertainment hours than there once was. Uh, so it's harder. But then at the same time, I will say my own career from the outside probably looks to the young writers like this wonderful smooth arc that just kept going up. Uh, in fact, it was a never ending struggle. And it's only really in the last year that uh, with Amazon that I haven't found struggle as necessary as it was before. My one example of that is to say when I had my first number one bestseller, I was at Putnam. And my publisher at that time called me up to tell me we were going to be number one on the New York Times. And before I could shout out in delight, uh, she said, but I want you to understand one thing. You did not write the kind of novels that can be number one, so this will never happen to you again. (laughs) And it was that kind of resistance that never stopped, actually, until very recently. So my greatest advice to writers is, you're going to hear a lot of negativity. It's going to be some days just depressing, but you have to not let it depress you. You have to push forward. I've long said perseverance is almost as important as talent because if you don't have perseverance, you might as well wrap it up at the start. Uh, It's a sad thing to say, but maybe it's this way in a lot of creative endeavors. Uh, There's a lot more people ready to tell you you can't do it then there are people willing to say you can. Got it. Well, what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend? Uh, well, I've been doing so much research. Uh, I, there was a lot of research devoted to the Jane Hawk series, uh, almost more than I've ever done for anything. And devoted took some research elsewhere, took uh, elsewhere is delivered and comes out in the fall. And a book called The Other Emily is also delivered. And, and uh, I've been doing so much research that my pleasure reading time has declined. But about every 10 years, I reread uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, uh, which I, I think is just the most magnificent novel. And every time I read it, I think this time I'll find problems with it. Uh, but I never have. Uh, and it's the older you get, the more cynical you can become about things you loved uh, in your youth. But this one I've probably now read four or five times, and uh, I just finished it. It's still magnificent. So uh, that's that's the latest thing I can exclaim about. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with best-selling writer Dean Kuntz. His brand new novel, Devoted, is available now. So go order a copy or buy the ebook. And Dean, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thanks for having me there. I hope I was coherent. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.